1: Girl, and you're gone too far because you know it don't matter anyway. You can rely on the old man's money, you can rely on the old man's money. It's a bitch girl. This is Sandy Clough
2: and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Money, money won't get you too far, get you too far.
0: How do you come up with this? I mean, the perfect move that I think has been created out of our number one. That's, of course, uh, the great Danny Bailey, our producer here. And uh, I'm Sandy Club, along with Nilo Piro Today, sitting in for Sean Rotar. This is Sandy and Sean on My Life Sports, 981 FM, 107.5 HD3. Our caller text line remains 303-831-1340. If you have any thoughts Whatever makes you more comfortable. You can text them in. We'll react. You can call, and we'll react to that. We are streaming on MileHighSports.com listen and the free Mile High Sports app. And we continue with our number two, and uh, most of the talking is going to be done in this hour by Nilo uh, Piro, since uh, we are repeating these two hours between uh, 4 and 6 o'clock, and the first hour, Dr. Rick Perea was dynamite, uh, as always. But here's why. Even after listening to Dr. Perea, I am very confident, as I was before Game 2, about the Nugget prospects of winning at least one game in Miami. And I did believe that while I thought the Nuggets would win Game 2 the other night, if there was a game in Denver that Miami was going to win, it would be Game 2. I I thought that was the most dangerous of the home games for Denver in this series, Game Number 2. I feel somewhat the same way about the Nuggets in Miami in Game 3. I think they'll win at least one of these two games, if not both. And the reason I like them particularly tomorrow night is because I think Nikola Jokic at times sets the mood more than Michael Malone does. And Michael Malone's not going to change, but we've seen this year that Michael Malone has stepped aside. And given the room, given the huddle over, trust to Nikola Jokic. Mm-hmm. There is trust from one to the other. Now, there are two very different types of personalities, but they have formed a relationship that I think has been the most important relationship to cultivate. And Michael Malone has recognized that it's the one with your best player. It's what Phil Jackson did to change Michael Jordan. I think in this case, it's worth the other way around. I think Nikola Jokic has changed mostly for the good Michael Malone and made him a different head coach. And again, I think most of the time, a better
2: head coach than Michael Malone was pre-Jokic. I agree. And I mean, even my first year covering this Nuggets team was Jokic's first season in the league when he was a third string center playing behind Joffrey Laverne and Yusuf Nurkic. And, and you just see. I forgot that he was yeah. third string. Third not string. Second Nobody even. knew who he was, you know, and, and it it I also forget. Little side tangent. Remember, at one point he wanted to come off the bench so Nurkic could start for the better. He did of the team. say that. That is so back to back. He really MVP. said that. This isn't
0: Michael Porter uh, telling Michael Correct. Malone, "Hey, if you want to play Bruce Brown down the stretch every game, as long as we win, I'm fine with that." Which was a bit apocryphal. I, I don't think Michael Porter quite said it in that way. But Nikola Jokic really did tell Michael Malone because he wanted to play with Nurkic. They were mm-hmm. they were close friends. Uh, they're still friends, maybe not quite as close, although Nurkic during these uh, playoffs has said some very nice things mm-hmm. about Jokic and the least surprised person in the world um, in uh, terming Jokic the best player in the world, the person least surprised by that
2: is Yusuf Nurkic. Yeah, you know, and and obviously he leaves, goes to Portland, has himself a fine career, but, but your point about the Malone-Jokic dynamic, I mean, it really is yin and yang push and pull in the sense of, Malone picks up with the feistiness and fire that maybe Jokic doesn't have. And Jokic provides that calmness and tranquility that Michael Malone, you know, can lack when he goes overboard and whatnot. And, and I agree with you. And at the end of the day, you know, especially when you're playing through Nikola Jokic, where he is the, the focal point of your offense, it gives you reason to remain calm because you've seen Jokic in the heat of the battle, whether they're up 10, down 10 or up one, down one, you know, with a handful of seconds to go. It's always the same. It's always consistent. He has never wavered. You know, we're talking about his press conferences and the energy and the mentality. Uh, and I think consistency is what has helped keep this team with their head on straight. And that's what, to me, makes Game 3 so interesting. Because I'll come out and say, I like Denver in the game. And I know Rick was talking about the the scientific side, but I'm also looking at it from an X's and O's perspective, coming off a loss where effort was in question. If Denver can't pull the rabbit out of the hat and put their best foot forward with this level of talent in this game, then there's some real concern. But I don't know. I, I, I think... Jokic has done an incredible job of stabilizing the emotion of the team because Michael Porter Jr., you know, a guy that can sometimes get down in the dumps. Jamal Murray, we talked about the volatility. Uh, Aaron Gordon, I think, is is probably the closest starter He's to Nicole the closest Jokic. temperamentally to Jokic, and I think spiritually the closest to Jokic, absolutely of all the starters. And I anyway. and I think the point that you make is if you can nullify Malone's hot headedness, Jokic is the person to do that. And regard Like, you can almost let Malone be Malone and be okay because of what Nikola Jokic brings to this team and the respect that he commands from all of his teammates. Well said. And I, I think you look at game one,
0: and uh, I'm sure you'll answer these questions yeah. the same way I, I, I would. Uh, they're somewhat rhetorical. Game one. Now, who is the tougher team of the two in game one? The Nuggets were, I would say. Yep. Who was the more active team in Game 1? Overall. Nuggets. Nuggets, of course. More focused team in Game 1. Nuggets. Overall. No question. Who was seemingly the team that played without fear and in a much more free-flowing manner? In Game 1. In Game 1.
2: Mm, the nuggets. Nuggets. Always.
0: Now, in Game 2, tougher team, Miami more active team, Mm -hmm. Miami, more focused team, Miami, more fearless team, Miami. Mm -hmm. Tougher implies a certain amount of physical force. What's Pat Riley's favorite word? Force. Mm -hmm. When he was coach of the Knicks, force basketball. People think the bad boy Pistons invented force basketball. Those people are wrong, dead wrong. The Knicks invented it. Pat Riley Mm -hmm. brought slugfest basketball to the NBA. Not the bad boys. Not the bad boys who were always overrated on defense and underrated on offense, lest you forget the sixth man they had coming off the bench who was all offense. All offense. Isaiah Thomas was much more offense than defense. Bill Lambeer, Yeah. He was annoying to play against, but I never thought, I thought Lambert was a finesse player Mm -hmm. with that outside jumper. I mean, kind of a forerunner to big men today who much preferred Lambert had no low post game whatsoever and non-existent. He was a jump shooter Mm -hmm. from the outside. He had a finesse game. So that, that team in terms of the way it really played, was misunderstood their games with the nuggets were always high scoring games uh the first year they won the championship the nuggets went into uh detroit no they were in the finals and lost to the lakers that year Mm -hmm. the nuggets went into detroit against the bad boys put 150
1: on Mm -hmm.
2: destroyed put 150 on them. and the difference between the bad boys and pat riley's knicks is Riley never won with the Knicks. You know, it's it's interesting no, to see how that dynamic. But that was changes.
0: more Pat Riley basketball than Showtime was. Jack McKinney mm-hmm. invented Showtime, not Pat right. Riley. Pat Riley will tell you that Jack McKinney invented mm-hmm. Showtime. Pat, the Pat Riley of today, who is much more reflective and uh, has become a real statesman and really a great basketball man. Um, I'm not sure during his coaching days he always felt. Or would acknowledge that Jack McKinney invented Showtime, but Pat Riley was a broadcaster when Jack McKinney came on as head coach. Jack McKinney invented Showtime and then had that awful bicycle accident and still came back from that to be coach of the year, except with the Indiana Pacers, because the Lakers then turned to Paul Westhead. Mm -hmm. They won a championship with Paul Westhead. And then, of course, Riley came on and won a few more championships, but didn't, didn't win in New York. But that was Pat Riley's connected in New York. Uh, the same town I was born in.
2: My father as well. Schenectady,
0: New York, ain't showtime.
2: Yeah, no, and it's weird because subconsciously I just had the urge to go on Wikipedia last night and start reading about Pat Riley. So it's like I have this weird, he's just been in my mind all day. And and seeing, because I find myself, Sandy, so infatuated with what Miami has been able to develop and how he sends the facts into the Knicks and basically dips out to South Beach and then builds his team around Alonzo Mourning and Tim Hardaway and obviously they don't win the chip and then it evolves into Dwayne Wade and Shaquille O'Neal. And has been carried through and followed but through. It's, from it's a
0: Shaquille O'Neal who was over the hill, and even yes. Shaq says to this day, "Oh no, that was Dwayne Wade's team." Yeah. Now, it, you know, Shaq will still say, although uh, he did patch things up with Kobe, and thankfully before Kobe yep, passed away, they had patched things up and you know mutual admiration society. But Shaq has always believed the Lakers were really his team, and they yeah. went as he went. But in Miami concedes when they won in 06, that that was Mm -hmm. Dwayne Wade's team. I joined Dwayne Wade's team. That was his team. And it was Riley's team. It was Riley's team taking over for Stan Van Gundy early on in that season and going on and getting to the finals. Heavy underdogs against Dallas, and they win the series. Of course, five years later, Dallas flips it. Right. and, right. uh, And upsets Miami with LeBron and Dwayne Wade. And, and Chris Bosch, and, of course, Eric Spolster is the coach. But Pat Riley selected Eric Spolster mm-hmm. as his successor. And, you know, Red Auerbach, back in the day, uh, selected Bill Russell. But you know what? That was only after Tommy Heinsohn and maybe Bob Cousy had turned him down. Yeah, and then he so. turned to Russell and he said, well, who's the only guy who can coach Russell late <laughs> in his career? Russell. Right. So uh, he, he ended, but I think Russell was at best second choice, maybe third choice. Eric Spolster was always Riley's guy, mm-hmm. and people said, you know, he'll do the same thing he did with Stan Van Gundy. First sign of trouble, he'll jump in. Never happened.
2: Yeah, and I mean, especially never happened when you know. The reports indicate that LeBron James and company marched into the office after they lost that NBA final to the Dallas Mavericks and essentially said, We got to get rid of this guy. And Riley said, You don't call the shots with my head coach. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Backbone.
0: And when James chose to leave, there was no sense that he was leaving because of Spolster. Correct. And or that Riley didn't care what LeBron James thought about Spolstra. Good, bad, or indifferent. Didn't Correct. matter. Correct. He was Riley's guy, and Riley was sticking with him. So I I will grant you that toughness and force, there's a physical aspect to that. But to me, more active, that's neck up. Focused, neck up. Fearlessness, neck up. Fear fear is a psychological condition. And I heard something today uh, on the radio, and I heard it i believe on nba radio from our old friend earl boykins Mm -hmm. who played 13 years in the nba thankfully several of them here in denver wonderful guy terrific coach now and he's on nba radio and he's talking about why the nuggets handled the lakers so easily and he's saying something that ken dryden said about the Boston Bruins, both this year and decades ago back when Bobby Orr played and Dryden's Canadians during Dryden's rookie year upset the big bad Bruins in the Stanley Cup playoffs and short-circuited a dynasty. Very memorable Mm -hmm. playoff series. The Bruins with Orr and Esposito and company would have had a dynasty. Montreal broke it up. What happened was, according to Ken Dryden and Earl Boykins today, When the Bruins this year came off a 65-win season and lost in the first round to Florida, they did not have, to use Ken Dryden's phrase, a constructive fear of losing. Mm. Earl Boykins made the point that the Nuggets had a constructive fear of LeBron James. Not necessarily of the Lakers as a team, but four times they went out on the floor, and we took them four games, and each and every game, they had a constructive fear of LeBron James. Constructive fear is equal to respect. So the fear wasn't destructive, but it, would, it brought about awareness. Hey, this guy can hurt us. Right. Maybe he's the only guy. Forget about Anthony Davis. Forget about Reeves. Forget about all the rest. The guy who can hurt us is LeBron right. We have a constructive fear of LeBron James. It was Earl Boykin's opinion that after game one, the Nuggets lost their fear of the Miami Heat because the Miami Heat don't have a LeBron. As good as Jimmy Butler is, they don't have a LeBron. And even in the Phoenix series, especially when it was 2-2, there was a constructive fear of Booker and Durant. I don't think the Miami Heat have a Booker. But the Miami Heat have Jimmy Butler, they have Bam Adebayo, two first-round picks, and a bunch of undrafted guys. And scrappy guys that play hard. Right. And you can see why one of the traps, maybe the biggest trap the Nuggets fell into after game one, is they lost their constructive fear of losing. And I'm saying this, I guess, partially in defense of Michael Malone, who he pretty much savage during the first hour of our program today, that maybe Michael Malone sensed that and was trying to put some fear back into the nuggets. The difference is, in my opinion, he didn't do it constructively.
2: No, he, he did it in a very aggressive and abrasive manner. Exactly. And, and I actually, I exactly. very I very much agree with you that Malone sensed that. Because here's the difference is, if, if I forget exactly. And that was the right sense, but he didn't communicate it properly. Correct. And that Malone has always had, is- I don't want to say issues with communicating, but he just, like I said well, earlier, all we had fire. Yeah, exactly. It's all He's fire and brimstone. He's enemy. It's know? all fire and brimstone. Precisely. And I, I think, you know, one thing that we've talked about, you know, on afternoon drive and talking with other fellows here at the station that was lacking in game two for the first time, really since those two road losses in Phoenix, is when Denver establishes their style of play and you have to have Miami cater to you, they're a very difficult team to beat because you have that free-flowing offense. Game two, the Nuggets did not play Denver Nuggets basketball. They did not set the tone. They got complacent, maybe lazy, lackadaisical, whichever adjective you'd like to use. And because of that, it made things tougher than it normally is. Denver setting the tone early and often does as much of keeping Malone off their back as it does build confidence within everybody else. And that's where, you know, Spolster was talking about, he, he shut down the question from Ramona Shelburne about, like, You can't make him into a scorer. You know, he's one of the greatest players of all time. I I don't necessarily buy that. I think that the way that you beat the Nuggets is you let Jokic be Jokic and you minimize the efforts and mentality of everybody else. Eric Spolster said what he wanted to say. Correct. He didn't
0: really answer the question. Mm -hmm. But he took the question and spun it as a question that indicated disrespect for Jokic when that was anything but. Exactly. The point of the question. Exactly. Because I mean, he knew what the point of the question was, but he wasn't going to say anything apart from what he wanted to say going in. And I've seen Patrick Waugh do that. Spolstra does it. The most skilled Nick Saban does it. Belichick in his own curmudgeonly way, I think does it. I want a certain message out there, and I don't give a damn what the questions are. I'm going to say these two or three things. Bob Hartley used to do that, the former Avalanche coach. And who did Patrick Waugh learn that from? He learned it from Bob Hartley. You say what you want to say regardless of the question. I remember in the 2001 Stanley Cup playoffs, quick story, Joe Sackick gets hurt in the first round, or I'm sorry, second round against the Los Angeles Kings. Avalanche took the first round over Vancouver. They're playing the Kings in the second round. They split the first two games. They win the third game in Los Angeles, but Sackett suffers a shoulder injury. What Rob Blake described at the end of the playoffs as a shoulder injury of such severity that really during the regular season with a normal human being, it would have been a four- to six-week injury. Sackett missed one game. It was game four. He came back. Between games three and four, Hartley's doing his media gathering after practice. And Mike Evans and I are walking up the stairs on either side of Hartley. And before he goes to address the media, he turns to me and he says, watch this. He gets asked about half a dozen different ways about Sackick's injury. And you know the hockey mentality in the playoffs when it comes to talking about injuries, right? Doesn't happen. Hartley gave us the indication by saying, watch this. He knew he'd get asked the same question in different ways over and over and over again. And his phrase was, sore shoulder. And he didn't deviate from that. However the question was phrased, he's got a sore shoulder. Well, does that mean he'll be out? Sore shoulder. That's the diagnosis. Sore shoulder. Missed one game. And, of course, that put a stop to the questions because he was playing. But what put a stop to the questions was that it became apparent that Hartley was going to say no more than sore shoulder. And it was a lot more, as we know now, than a sore shoulder uh, from that occasion. All right. We'll come back and um, we'll hear from Michael Malone. Let, I mean, we killed him over the first <laughs> 75 minutes of this show. We'll let Malone speak for himself as uh, the Nuggets get ready for Game 3 against the Heat tomorrow night. This is Mile High Sports. Sandy and Sean, we've got Anilo Piro sitting in for Sean Brotar on this Tuesday afternoon. Stay with us.
1: Sandy Clough and Sean
2: Tar, presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at superbook.com. Here's Sean and Sandy.
0: Sean Drotar off today. I'm Sandy Clough alongside Anilo Pirro on this Tuesday afternoon in the Mile High City, 6th day of June, 2023. This is Mile High Sports, 98.1 FM, 107.5 HD3, our caller text line. Is 303-831-1340. We're streaming on milehighsports.com slash listen and the free Mile High Sports app. Our producer is the great Danny Bailey and our thanks to Anilo for sitting in uh, today for Sean, who uh, apparently fell ill watching the Nuggets the other night. No, I, it's no truth to that rumor whatsoever. No truth to that rumor whatsoever. Well, uh... At least two of the three people who have been on this program today, including myself and Dr. Rick Perry, have been really tough on Michael Malone. Uh, so we're going to
2: give Malone a chance
0: to speak for himself here in ALO.
2: Yeah, he had the opportunity to meet with the media early today, he talked about a variety of different different topics. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's start with honesty, because Malone, right. we talked about that with Doc, about the dynamic of love and being compassionate. And obviously, Malone is a hothead and very fiery. Here's Michael Malone in regards to the criticism directed towards his team after the game two loss and why he's able to justify it because he feels as if
3: he's honest. Well, honesty isn't critical, so I don't I don't view it as being critical. I think it was an honest assessment of the game. And before I came out and spoke to you guys, I had the same conversation with our players. Never once will I come into a press conference and say something to you. Uh, that I haven't spoken to our team about. And our players owned it. I asked them after the game, why did we lose tonight? And they told me we didn't play hard enough. They told me we weren't disciplined enough. So it wasn't critical by any nature. It was an honest assessment.
0: I think it was more accurate, though. Not just honest, but more accurate after game two. The problem was maybe saying on Friday... The next day, something different about game one than he had said right after the game the night before and then doubling down on the negative review of Denver's game one performance saying we did not play well. Yes, his criticism was more pointed and more severe after game two, but what he said after game one in Dr. Rick Peria's mind set the stage, at least psychologically, for game two created some anxiety that didn't need to be there. Jamal Murray, after game one, we played beautiful basketball. There isn't isn't much uh, there to leave for interpretation, right? We played beautiful basketball. That was an honest and accurate assessment. Michael Malone's after-game assessment of the Nuggets Thursday night was honest and, I believe, truthful, accurate. But for some reason on Friday, he decided, I guess, after looking at the film or tape, that he had changed his mind, that the Nuggets didn't play very well. And then he kind of doubled down on that Saturday. And that's what mystified me. I don't think the point has that much to do with honesty. It has to do with communicating between games one and two, not a Pollyannish message, but an honest message that would have been perfectly justified had he broken it down and said, I love the first three quarters. Didn't love the fourth quarter at all on either end of the floor. And we took what should have been a stress-free game and made it that much more stressful. We have to be aware of that. When we're at the top of our game, I love our team. But we can get careless and sloppy. By making a blanket review of game one the way he did, I don't think he left himself very much room to react to a loss because he was critical after a win. And that's what I think is confusing to the public and, more importantly, to his players, some of
2: them anyway. He gets just very wrapped up in the moment. And, and, you know, I know he didn't change his tune this morning, but one thing my good friend Jeff Morton, you know, was talking about this, him and I were going back and forth. And you get a better understanding of where Malone is at when he talked with the media the day after a game at practice, because he's cooled down. You, you He has an inability to separate the emotion from reality. I agree with you most of the time. But last, that's right, different to me about game one, that
0: after the game, he reacted as a winning coach would react in the NBA finals. He seemed pleased. Then the next day, he heated up, got himself all worked up. Oh, he didn't play well. Oh, they... They should have made most, if not all, of those threes because they were wide open. Yes, Coach, they were wide open, but they were completely out of sync, completely out of rhythm. A lot of them were taken in desperation as the shot clock was running out. Mm-hmm. I didn't see them take nearly as many uncomfortable threes in game two as they had in game one, even though they were shooting from similar spots on the floor. There's a, it, Not all 20-footers. 25-footers, 10-footers, 12-footers are created equal. You can shoot completely different shots from one game to the next from exactly the same position on the floor. And some can be easy and some can be difficult. And what you have in Jokic and the reason why I think he is unique in this regard is that Jokic makes, quote-unquote, easy shots, comfortable-looking shots, and uncomfortable-looking shots, both look easy. But most players, including most Nugget players, aren't like that. Miami Heat players aren't like that. When Butler goes to his right hand and doesn't pump fake, he can shoot from the same spot he shoots from going left after pump faking. One shot he makes regularly going right, the other, he misses or gets blocked a fair share of the time going left. He's shooting from the same spot. What's the difference? The difference is you're in rhythm on one and out of rhythm on the other.
2: Yeah, and, and I think, you know, speaking of rhythm, Malone also talked about how discipline and communication obviously needs to be better. And I find the soundbite that you're about to hear so funny because the specific number of plays, he counted them all out. Like, you know, he's got like, his, okay, that one, that one, that one. This is the anal part of Malone, but let him speak for himself. Here he goes.
3: Well, I I showed 17 clips this morning and they were just, every clip was a, a, a discipline clip, if you will, where a discipline, whether it was game plan, whether it's personnel, whether it's defending without fouling, whatever it may be, 17 clips added up to over 40 points in game two. And that, that to me is staggering. So What we can do better is just be a lot more disciplined in terms of the game plan, who I'm guarding, and most of that stems from communication. You know, a a saying I learned a long time ago, communication is concentration. For me to communicate, I have to know what the hell to say. And if I'm not concentrating, if I'm not focusing, I don't know what to say. And we had way too many examples for an NBA Finals game where we have guys not on the same page because of a lack of communication. Their ball movement, their body movement, obviously they do a really good job with that, but we've played 17 games now in these playoffs. I think, uh, and we've shown, think about this, man. Going into the fourth quarter, they had 75 points. They're shooting 43% from the field, and we're up eight. So now it's just a matter of sustaining it for a lot closer to 48 minutes.
0: That message, particularly at the end, Mm -hmm. is absolutely fine, and using 17 plays, cutting them up, as a teaching tool. I have absolutely no problem with that in all seriousness, in all seriousness, no problem with that as a teaching tool. And I have no problem with what he said at the end of the game, which he didn't say either on Sunday night or on Friday or Saturday after game one, that he said for three quarters, we gave up 75 points. They shot 43%. Um, I, I, I'm a stat guy. Listen, far be it for me to say a coach should talk less about stats, but in this case, he should talk less about stats. But in that particular case, I mean, that isn't deep statistical analysis. He's contrasting 75 points and 43% with the much higher percentage they shot in the fourth quarter and giving up 36 out of 111 points scored by the Heat in the fourth quarter. well, 36 be- out of 111, which is almost a third of their points. Mm-hmm. Similar to Game 1, and that's where Game 1 and Game 2 do tie together, where the Nuggets were up 21 after 3 and 8 after 3, mm-hmm. and you say, well, 8-21, what difference does it make? Uh, the Nuggets this year, with an 8 point lead going into the fourth quarter were 37 and 1 before Sunday night. For the year, regular season, postseason, they were 11 and 0 in the playoffs and leading by 10 or more points at any stage of the game. They're now 11 and 1 and they're now 37 and 2, but to break it down that way, game 1, we gave them 30 out of their 93 in the fourth quarter. Game two, we gave them 36 out of their 111 in the fourth quarter. Fourth quarter hasn't been good enough. And if these games are close, and he could say, as I expect them to be from here on out, we can't be outplayed that badly in the fourth quarter. That isn't who we've been in these playoffs. It isn't who we've been all year. The Nuggets in games decided by five points or less have a terrific record. They lost by three the other night. Because they played, particularly in the fourth quarter, lousy basketball at both ends.
2: You know, and that was another major talking point from Michael Malone earlier today when he addressed the media about the fourth quarter woes. Let's go ahead and play that soundbite. Here he is at practice talking about how they have to be better in crunch time.
3: If you really want to simplify the first two games, it's it's a in the first three quarters we have dominated both games. The Miami Heat are dominated in the fourth quarter. They're averaging thirty points, thirty three points a game in the fourth quarter shooting over 60% from the field in the fourth quarter and over 50% from three. So we're up eight going into the fourth quarter. In game two, we're up 21 going into the fourth quarter of game one. And they opened up on a 15-2 to run in that fourth quarter to take control of that game. So how can Michael help himself? How can everybody else help themselves communicate, be disciplined? And it starts with the defense. If we defend and rebound, we can get out and run. We had 18 fast break points in game two. 16 in the first half, and 13 in that second quarter. And obviously, as I mentioned, we're not getting any runouts in the fourth quarter because we're defending nobody.
2: Basically everything
3: you just said. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but, but that's
2: that's the
0: point you made, right. that generally a day or two in this case, after a loss, he's calmed down, he's more analytical, his communication is better. So, all the more reason to say fear not. <laughs> the Nuggets will bounce back and win game three tomorrow night and take a 2-1 lead in the series. The person I really want to hear from, and we will momentarily, is Nikola Jokic. That's coming next, Sandy Clough and Nilo Piro. In for Sean Rotar, this is Mile High Sports. Stay with us. And all I
1: could taste is this all I could- Sponge cake, watching the sun this is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports.
2: Sandy Clough, Danilo Perro
0: sitting in for Chandro Tar. And of course, customarily on from four to six. We will repeat. Our two hours between four and six today, right here on Mile High Sports, ninety eight one FM, one oh seven five HD three, our caller text line. And uh, I understand, Danny, we do have a text or two, which we will get to uh, momentarily, three oh three eight three one, thirteen forty. We're streaming on Mile High Sports dot com slash listen and the free Mile High Sports app. The great Danny Bailey, our producer, and um, we have a text, I believe. At least one? We
2: sure do. We've got a text from Joe. He said, there's been some pushback by some that the coaching matchup isn't as tilted as generally suggested. After listening to this conversation with the doctor, I think it's fair to say that while you could debate how the opposing coaches
0: match up from a strategy and X's and O's standpoint, the true advantage Miami has is found in Spolster's leadership skills like presence, demeanor, communication. Great stuff. Thanks for the text, Joe. Thank you. Um, and, and that's the impression I got, too. Mm-hmm. This really isn't about X's and O's, and Malone does fine with the X's and O's, and uh, the breakdown of film or tape, whatever uh, you choose to call it. I, I, I don't think there's a great disparity between the two coaches in that sense. But I, I think Spolster, not just by comparison with Malone, but by comparison with virtually every NBA coach, uh, possibly accepting Popovich and Kerr, Spolstra has the upper hand. He's been there a long time. Riley stuck with him for Mm -hmm. some 15 years. And, uh, you know, Kerr hasn't been around as long. Popovich has been around a little longer than Spolstra. But those three coaches are the three coaches I can think of in the NBA right now who will have jobs for as long as they want to have jobs at their present locations right. they will be able to coach for as long as they want they have ultimate job security uh for the other as we found in this off season so far for some teams and it is the off season we we see that uh coaching is a uh well-paying job
2: but it is not a secure job right you know coach malone would always talk about how his father kind of wanted him not to get into coaching, but you know what you get into. Well, his father
0: know? bounced around
2: right. a lot Hired as to an get assistant fired.
0: coach. Correct. As an assistant coach. Now, he was a head coach for brief stretches, but basically for 28 years, he was an assistant coach in the NBA, mm-hmm. and he had uh, at least two stints in New York that I remember and at least two stints in Detroit that I
2: remember. You know, and in credit to Spolstra, you know, a guy who's been there for a long time and has earned the trust of a Pat Riley. I've actually compared, you know, going back to the start of the series, I said Eric Spolstra is the NBA's version of Mike Tomlin. That's kind of where my head at. Oh, in. what a comparison. The, the epitome right of consistency. I, I right mean, you on. know, they're always going to be competitive. I mean, Tomlin's never had a losing season, which is still miraculous to me. And Pittsburgh's only had three head coaches in their franchise history, which is and also insane. he has a better winning percentage than Noel. Yep. And he has a better winning percentage than Coward. And that team wasn't good last year. Like, I, I mean, there were some, some def, you know, some deficiencies on both sides of the ball. And, you know, Kenny Pickett ain't exactly lighting up the world. Mitchell well, Trubisky, apart from the fact they really didn't have a quarterback. Exactly. So <laughs> I, I think it's interesting. But, you know, Sandy, one yeah. big talking Other point here that, throughout the detail. course of uh, this series has been the zone defense that the Miami Heat are bringing to the table against Denver. Nicole Jokic, during his media availability this afternoon, was talked about playing against the zone. Here's right. what the Joker had to say.
1: You know they're really intelligent team, uh, really smart. They have really smart players, um, Jimmy, Bam, uh, Kyle, and who can who can uh, read the uh, read uh, read the moment and read the game, uh, and they can just kind of morph morph in some different zone if that make any sense, uh, and just uh, uh, as a team they they know how to how to not how like what. Uh, what they want to give up or, or whatever you know they're really intelligent from the coach to the players and uh, that, that's why the, the zone is so effective not just against us uh, it's against uh, the the whole playoffs you know um but uh sometimes sometimes we get a we get a good look sometimes we don't but i think that's uh even in a regular man to man sometimes you give a good shot sometimes you don't and
0: that's the part of the answer at the end that i remember and i just started laughing Sometimes uh, the zone can force you into bad shots, but man to man can force you into bad shots too. Listen, uh I I heard that entire answer live as it was given on NBA radio earlier today, and uh, he's much more polite than than I would have been when he was asked. You know, basically the question was, how do you plan to? Agree attack the zone defense. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you that. And I would have said, well, uh, whenever you talk with Spolstra, if he told you when and how, and under what conditions they're going to use the zone, I'll be glad to answer your question. Exactly. Uh, I know he probably didn't reveal that. So I'm no more going to tell you, uh, about how I'm going to attack the zone, or we're going to attack the zone. Then he uh, was uh, in not telling you <laughs> about when and how and under what circumstances he'd use it. Uh, listen, uh, I, I to me that's that's a great answer, and that is typical Nikola Jokic.
2: That's what makes him so
0: special. unflappable. Hey, they're a smart team. That's why they can use different defenses. And he used a great word. They can morph from man to man to zone. And it's almost not even noticeable when they do it, at least initially. Once you see a player cut through and nobody follows them, okay, they're in a zone. (laughs) But that might take a little while, a few seconds. But I thought actually the answer was fine. Though not revealing, and there's no reason it should have been revealing.
2: Yeah, I mean it's like the equivalent of a football player or a football coach telling you what the first 15 plays are going to be. You, yeah, you, you, hey, give me the script. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you're, you're not going to show the could hand. Could you please, coach, tell me what the script is going to be? And Sunday, you know, I think when it, when it's all said and done, I, I just I can't wait for this game. Like I hate that we have two days off in between okay. because I'm ready to well, stick my teeth. You
0: know, in. it's you know? just. just Tomorrow, pump the brakes. It's coming tomorrow. up. It's
2: coming up. Tomorrow. It's gonna be exciting because it, it it feels like, and I know that we talked about, you know, regardless who wins or loses, it's still a live series. But it feels like if Miami can pull this game out, knowing you have to play Game Four in Miami again, momentum will really shift. And and I, I, I the point that you made about Earl Boykins is really sticking with me. That the comment that he made because it, but like Denver was up and ready for Phoenix, even going back to Minnesota because they knew what light ahead of them, right? They Reaching for something, you know, yeah. the, the cookie jar at the top of the shelf, whatever it might yeah. be. I wonder if the emotions were kind of let out of the bag, knowing that Miami, I don't want to say is an inferior opponent, but doesn't have that star power that maybe some of these other yeah. teams have. It's, it, it, it's so different from the type of opponent they've been playing, where you had,
0: and maybe I'm oversimplifying here, but Minnesota, Edwards, and Towns are the only guys you really worry about hurting yeah, you, right. right? And even Towns, I think that's marginal. Edwards, yes. Second series, Booker and Durant. And maybe Paul. Well, Paul gets hurt. So then it really is just Booker and Durant. Nobody else worries you on the Phoenix Suns other than those two. Third series, LeBron and Davis, but especially LeBron. You're not really worried about anybody else. Yeah, Austin Reeves had some good moments and played very well in the series, But the Nuggets were never going to be worried and had no need to be worried about D'Angelo Russell, for example. Hachimura is a nice complimentary player, but he's not going to beat you by himself. Correct. And, you know, he started some games and he came off the bench at times in that series. So you're, you're used to worrying about two people. And I guess with the Heat, you could say that the two best players are Adebayo and Butler but to me in this series anyway you know last series i thought the best player was martin to be honest with you and then butler and then Adebayo, who did not have a great series against boston cuz the matchup for him right. was a combination of williams and horford and they're totally different guys, body yeah. types not not just inferior players but completely different body types from jokic but in the past though jokic will be jokic against Adebayo. Adebayo playing against Jokic, he's had a history of getting his points mm-hmm. and playing very well against Jokic Jimmy. offensively. So I'm I'm looking at this, and yeah, I guess you could say Adebayo and Butler, but in this series, I'd say Adebayo and Gabe Vincent in games one and two have been their two best players.
2: I agree. I mean, even Jimmy Butler today talked about how and he said as if they were going to, and he said, When we win the chip, it's gonna be because of Bam Adebayo. Like that that's That's even, what he said, matter right. of fact. Matter exactly. of fact,
0: when we win the championship, he'll be the difference. Yeah, he will be, be the internalize
2: reason. that as well. Yeah.
0: So, what a great statement! It, I mean, mean that, that that boy that jumped out at you exactly, and, and it was a declaration, but it was not made with a hint of arrogance. Because okay. I heard it; I heard it live when he said it, and and it's it was not. Be the reason made why we
1: win the championship.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it's very matter of fact. Not not said,
2: you know, with. Any kind of braggadocio involved? The scariest part of the Miami Heat is they haven't blinked. They lose game one, and they they
0: they just cool, calm, collected. They're not going to quit. They're going to be relentless. Their competitiveness Mm. is not going to go away. And, you know, that's psychological and physical. They're they're a small team, but Boston, Boston's a bigger team than Miami. Most every yeah. team in the league is a bigger team than Miami. It, Miami is a much tougher team than Boston, both physically and mentally. Most importantly, mentally. They're tougher than Boston. Yeah. They they were tougher the whole series. Boston came back and tied the series on talent. Well, we wish Sean Drotar a speedy recovery. Uh, We will be back tomorrow between 2 and 4, and if you missed any portion of the last two hours, you can catch up over the next two hours right here with Sandy Clough and Anilo Pirro on My High Sports.